Is there a desire in you to not just attend revival, but live in revival? Welcome to the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Saldivar. I've been in revival for the last 10 years, as well as traveling and being a part of many revivals throughout the United States. I'm going to be sharing with you how to live a radical lifestyle of revival on a daily basis. For tonight's going to be exciting, though. I'm excited to share with you. We're going to be talking about the entire book of John in one hour. I know some of you say, Isaiah, it's too ambitious. There's no way you can cover 21 chapters. The clock starts now in 60 minutes, and I'm going to do my best. Guys, remember, this is not exhaustive. This is an overview of every chapter. I love doing this, and here's why. Most people are not going to watch my verse by verse through Revelation, through the book of Acts, through the book of Romans. They're not going to sit through 15 hours, 10 hours of verse by verse, but they will sit through a 60 minute video where we cover the entire book. And I do want to cover the entire book verse by verse, probably after Romans, but I'm I'm excited for this tonight because it's going to give you a snapshot in one hour, the book of John, my favorite gospel, my favorite, one of my favorite books of the Bible. So that's the goal. So if you're like, you didn't explain that you went over that too fast. I'm covering, I'm trying to cover 20. 21 chapters. That's like three minutes per chapter. I'm trying to do that in 60 minutes. So let me go on here and stop rambling and talk a little bit about the book. The first three books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called the Synoptic Gospels. And the reason why they're called that is because they're similar in content and they're similar in approach. John is not a Synoptic Gospel. John is the fourth book and he doesn't cover as many events, but includes more of Jesus's teaching. So less events, more of Jesus's teachings. And unlike the other gospels, John skips the birth of Jesus in his gospel and goes right into Jesus's public ministry. John does take a different approach. John is, if you don't know who John is, some of you are new for the first time. You just, someone said today, I just started reading the Bible today and I'm reading John and here we are. But John is the son of Zebedee and Salome, the brother of James. He was a fisherman in the sea, on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus called him as one of the first disciples. He's also part of Jesus's inner circle of the three disciples who were privileged to be at special events the other disciples couldn't be at. Yes, Jesus had an inner circle. He was also an eyewitness event to the teaching, eyewitness to what he, the events and to the teachings of Jesus. He wrote in John and was called the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is interesting because if you think about it, John writes in his own gospel that he's the disciple Jesus loved. So you're like, okay, John, a little bit biased there, but I, but I love it there. He's also the one that leaned on Jesus's chest at the last Passover dinner just before Jesus's death. He was also the one that Jesus asked to take care of his mother after his death. He asked John to take care of Mary. And next to Paul, John wrote more New Testament books than anyone else. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And he also wrote my personal favorite, the book of Revelation. So two of my favorite three books of the Bible, John wrote. So you could tell that I kind of like John here. It's believed that John, and listen to what I'm going to say here. It's believed that John wrote the gospel of John around 85 to 90 AD. So 85 to 90 years after Jesus died, John writes his gospel in his old age. He writes his gospel about 80 to 90 years. That's kind of what scholars believe. To me, John is my favorite gospel. And you're notice, you'll notice while we're teaching it and while you read it, as he takes a different approach than Matthew, Mark, and Luke when writing his gospel, I would say that the gospel of John is more revelatory in nature than systematic. That just means there's more revelation in the teachings. There's more revelation of who Jesus was. And that's going to lead us into, and I pray tonight by God's grace, we can get this done. That's going to lead us into chapter one. Chapter one starts with Jesus existed before he was born in Bethlehem, that he created the world and everything in it. Jesus did not start when he was born in Bethlehem, but Jesus existed long before, even before time, Jesus was there. And this is how, don't miss this, this is how John starts 
his gospel. It's John 1, 1. Don't miss this. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. This is the start of John's gospel. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In other words, Jesus did not come into existence when he came to the earth, but actually Jesus is God. For those that say Jesus never claimed to be God, the Bible never says Jesus is God, which by the way, Christians say this, Right here, we ma- it makes it explicitly clear that Jesus is God. The Word was God. Jesus is Creator God and was there in the beginning. Now, his, his readers would recognize his wording because Genesis opens up with the same phrase, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then John opens with, in the beginning was the Word. So in the beginning was the start of the Genesis and the start of the Gospel of John. Again, some say, well, Jesus never says he's God. John 1. The word, if you see that there in John 1, 1, the word is Jesus. The word is not the Bible, okay? Some of you are like, that means the Bible. No, it doesn't. It's Jesus. The word was, is, and was Jesus. The Greek word logos translates to word, means the spoken word that communicates meaning or a message. So John, so Jesus communicates to us what God is like. That is why Jesus is called the word in John 1. God's, the Father's actions, his thoughts, his feelings, and his attitudes. Jesus was in the beginning with God. So was the Holy Spirit, but also Jesus was there. So unlike us, Jesus always existed. Jesus did not just be born one day, and there he is. He always existed. His life did not begin when he was born on earth. The word with indicates personal relationship between two or more people. In other words, they are both God not two different gods they're both god so yes jesus is god and jesus was divine and is divine even when he walked the earth i don't believe the teaching that says jesus gave up his divinity now the bible says jesus gave up divine privileges but didn't give up his divinity so jesus was god's agent in creating everything light darkness sky water land vegetation sun animals fish birds people everything in this world was created by jesus through jesus and even before he was born as a human he showed us what god was like through creation also we're going to see in john 1 john the baptist his ministry was to introduce people to jesus and to testify to who he was john drew attention to jesus not himself and isn't that just the opposite of us today we want ourselves to be the center of attention but g but john the baptist says i don't want credit i don't want to be the star i don't want to be the center of attention i want people to notice jesus because jesus is far more important than me and i pray that i would be a john the baptist where i would not point people to isaiah but i would keep pointing people to jesus that is why john said I must decrease so he must increase. He wasn't saying I need to be more humble. He was saying I need to get off the stage so that Jesus can get on the stage. I need to get out of the limelight. I need to get, let Jesus in the limelight. So it's about pointing people to Jesus, not us. It's about making Jesus famous, not us. My goal is not to make me famous. The reason why my Instagram, Facebook, YouTube is all about Jesus and the Bible is because my goal is to make him famous, not to make me famous, okay? Jesus came to offer, we're gonna go through, to offer eternal life to people, but his own Jewish people didn't recognize him who consequently rejected him. So the John 1, Jesus was rejected by his own people. This still happens today. The world loves the works of Jesus oftentimes, but the church rejects rejects the work of God, rejects deliverance, rejects miracles, rejects repentance, rejects holiness, and the same thing we're seeing today. And then we go on at, towards the end, Jesus, who is God, became a man to show us what God was like. That's John 1, 14 through 18. Jesus revealed the Father. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Our words reveal our character. So whatever you speak reveals who you are in your character. And Jesus revealed the character of God, the identity of the Father, the motives of the Father. We're going to see this all throughout the gospel of John. 
Jesus reveals the Father. If you've seen me, Jesus says, then you've seen the Father. That's what Jesus does. And this is why Jesus is the Word of God. Remember, Jesus is the Word, not in John 1, not the Bible. That's what it is talking about. It's talking about Jesus. So John the Baptist introduced Jesus to the Jewish people as the Lamb of God, who would later die to take away their sins. This is what John the Baptist taught. The Lamb of God is coming, the last Lamb, to take away your sins. And so this was John the Baptist, the voice of one. They came and said, John, who are you? What are you doing? And this is John's response. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And I believe tonight we need more John the Baptists to rise up to be the voice of one that would cry out in the wilderness, that would preach a message of repentance and that would get ready to forerun the coming king because that is what we're doing right now. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming, he's approaching, he's coming to the earth, and we need John the Baptist's that will cry out. And then lastly, towards the end of John 1, verses 35 through 51, Jesus is gonna recruit the first of the 12 disciples to be with him, learn from him, and to ultimately tell others about, tell others about him. So here's your lesson here. Our goal as Christians, as disciples, is to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, and then to tell others about Jesus. I like that. That's the Christian life. That's the goal. Okay, we're doing good. Chapter two. Chapter two, Jesus attends a wedding, and while attending the wedding, Jesus turns water into, into wine, and the wine was better than the wine the host had already served. This was Jesus' first public miracle, and it's about God taking the ordinary and turning it into the extraordinary. God takes our water, God takes our natural, and turns it into wine, which is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, symbolic of the supernatural life. And when you hear of the new wine being poured out in the Bible, that's the Holy Spirit being poured out. When Jesus goes, there's a new wine, the old wineskin can't handle that's the outpouring of the holy spirit and i can confidently say and man i feel the holy spirit tonight as i'm talking about this 11 years ago god turned my water into wine and i've been living a supernatural life ever since i had this life that was natural this life that was normal this life that was ordinary and god took my water and turned it into wine i wish i had somebody in the chat that says isaiah god has done the same thing in my life he took my puny weak ordinary life my my just water and he supernaturally turned it into wine and now i have a life of passion of holy spirit and of excitement this would be the first public miracle that would point to Jesus's deity. And let me read this in John 2, 3 through 5. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does that concern with, how does that concern me? My hour has not yet come. And the mother said to the servants, and this is what I want you to catch. Whatever he says, do it. Whatever he says to you, do it. And here's the key. This will change your life. Whatever Jesus says, do it. If that's the only thing you get tonight, if you want to live a supernatural life, whatever he says, do it. If you want to be blessed, whatever he says, do it. If you want a healthy marriage and a healthy family, come on, chat. Whatever he says, do it. I'm telling you this one sentence. Live by this sentence. And that Mary said to the servants, and it'll change everything. Whatever Jesus says. Somebody right now in the chat say, whatever he says, do it. I'm committing my life to doing whatever Jesus says, to living however he says to live. This was Jesus' calling and Jesus' ministry, and this is our calling in our ministry, whatever he says. Now, Jesus lived by that. Whatever the Father says, Jesus goes, I'm going to do it. Now, we live by whatever Jesus says, I'm going to do it. That changes everything. Okay, after that, Jesus drove the animal merchants and money changers out of the temple, charging them with turning God's house into a marketplace. And important to note, Jesus, it's hard for me not to preach all these because I've preached all these stories in depth, so it's hard to not go in, but I'm going to go quick here. 
the first week of his ministry, he cleaned out the temple. And the last week of his ministry, he cleaned out the temple. The temple doesn't just represent the temple. The temple also represents our body. So Jesus drives the thieves. He delivers us. He drives things out of us by his power. So we're going to see him cleansing the temple the first week of his ministry and the last week of his ministry. Basically, they were putting the dove in cages, which represents containing the Holy Spirit. They were selling sacrifices. They were exchanging money. They were making it easy to follow God. You didn't have to raise a sacrifice. You can just go ahead and buy a sacrifice. And that's what we've done in the church. You don't need to do anything. It's easy. Just come and we'll do it for you. And then after that, Jewish authorities demanded a sign from Jesus to prove his authority when he was cleansing the temple. And instead of proving his authority, he told them about his death and resurrection. Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days and I'll raise it up. And they responded with, it took 46 years to build the temple and you're going to raise it up in three days. They didn't understand Jesus was speaking of his body. So he said, the temple is my body and I'll raise that temple up. So the temple, our temples, our, our bodies, our temples of the Holy Spirit, but also demons try to live in us and Jesus comes and drives those thieves out and those robbers out in very important story that you need to look into. When Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible says his disciples remembered him telling the Pharisees that he'd raise this body up. Okay, 12 minutes in, we're behind schedule, but we're doing okay. Chapter three, Jesus tells Nicodemus in John three, one through eight, you must be born again to enter the kingdom. There's no way of getting around it. You must be born again. It's not about intellect. It's not about education. It's not about status. There's a real spiritual thing that happens when you are born again in the spiritual realm, when you're made new, and when you go from death to life, no longer are you a natural being, but you're born into the spiritual realm. You are a spiritual being. So he said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. There's no way of getting around it. And today God is saying to you, you must be born again. Jesus then in John 3, 9 through 15, used the object lesson of the Israelites when they were saved from death by looking at the bronze snake to teach that spiritual salvation is the result of an individual decision to believe in Jesus who died for our sins. So in the same way, when Moses put that snake up, the people were dying, they were sick. God said, make a bronze snake, lift the snake up. And when they look at the snake, they're going to be healed. Jesus was beat he was bruised. He was put up on a cross so that when we look to Jesus, we're saved. The same way the bronze serpent, the bronze had to be beat to become a serpent. Jesus was beat to become the curse. The serpent represents the curse. So this is Jesus saying, look, the same way they were healed from death, you're going to be healed from death when you look upon me as I'm lifted up on the cross. John 3, 16 through 21, we know this. Jesus loved the world so much. I'm sorry, God loved the world so much that he sent his son to save men and women, not to condemn them. And 25, listen to what I'm about to say here. And 25 English words, John 3, 16 summarizes most of the Bible. It contains a number of profound yet simple truth that God loved the world so much that God took action. God was not indifferent or passive as many believe. God said, I'm going to take action and sent my one and only son on a rescue mission to save those who are perishing. And Jesus made it clear that when he came into the world, he came to save them, give them eternal life, not to condemn them to hell. This was not Jesus's mission to come to earth to say you're condemned to hell. That's not why he came down. He didn't come down in the wrath of God. He came down as a lamb to save them, to save the world and to give them eternal life. But there is condemnation for those that reject Jesus. And the Bible says, this is the condemnation. 
Here's how, here's why the world is condemned. Are you ready? That when light came into the world, men love darkness more than they love light. That's the condemnation. Men do not love the light. And here's why men don't like the light. Here's why you don't like the light because it reveals our sinful deeds. We want to hide our sin from God. We want to be secretive about our sin, our pornography, our lust, our anger, our bitterness, our resentment, our jealousy, our contention, our strife, our fornication. The list goes on. I can keep going. We want to hide that from God. The light of Christ exposes our sin and makes us see our sin for what it really is. And that is terrible. And then we're able to now see our sin. We have to choose to repent or to hate the God that revealed our sin. So men love, here's why they're condemned, because they love the darkness. We love hiding our sin from God. But God says, my light will expose your sin so I can heal you of your sin. Okay, John, at the end of John 3, John's, uh, John the Baptist's disciples were upset because Jesus was becoming more popular than their leader. And John acknowledged that Jesus must become greater while his own ministry diminished. Remember, when John says... I got to decrease. It's not just like, I got to be more humble. I know we use that in the church today. John was saying my public ministry has to go off to the side so that Jesus can become famous so that he can be the one that I'm exalting. And then again, at the end of John three, Jesus appearance on earth brought in the eternal choice. Every person must make. These are the two choices. Every single human being, again, I'm, of course, I'm summarizing all of this in John three here, but this is the, this is the decision. Number one, receive Jesus, accept him and get eternal life. Or number two, reject him. There is only two choices that a human can make in this life. The, the, the acceptance of Jesus and what he did on the cross and receiving eternal life or rejecting the work Jesus did on the cross, denying Jesus, uh, not serving Jesus and being damned to hell for eternity. The atheist says, how could a loving God send me to hell? But the truth is, why would you want to go somewhere with a God that you hate? for eternity. Why would God send you to heaven when you hate him? You want nothing to do with him. So he sends you to hell, which is a place where he doesn't exist. So it's actually not unloving. It's actually loving that God would send you somewhere that you want to go. You don't want God. Okay. You hate God. Okay. God sends you to hell because heaven is where God is. So why would God send you somewhere where he is forever? That's a word somebody needs to hear tonight. Chapter four, we're doing good. 18 minutes in chapter four, Jesus made a detour through Samaria to talk to a woman at the well and offer her eternal life. This was a woman that had been married to multiple men. Jesus gives her a word of knowledge. She starts talking about worship. Where should we worship? And Jesus basically gets to a place and goes, you're asking, I'm asking you for water, but honey, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for water because the water that I give is spiritual. It's eternal. And when you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. Friend, I'm telling you that you'll always thirst if you don't drink of Jesus. You'll always be looking for pleasure and looking for love and looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. And this actually story is one of my favorite in the whole Bible. But Jesus goes, the water that I give is eternal and you'll never thirst again. She's like, well, I don't have to come back to the well, but she didn't realize this is eternal life. He's offering her an eternal water. And then Jesus said that the father's looking for those that will worship in spirit and in truth. Then the Samaritan woman in John 4, 27 through 42, goes back to her village and begins to tell people that she had met the Messiah. And in the meantime, Jesus teaches the disciples the principle of sowing and reaping in relation to faith. So the disciples are like, He's talking to this woman at this well. This doesn't look good. She goes back, becomes an evangelist, and revival happens for several days in that village. 
Meanwhile, the disciples get taught about sowing and reaping. This woman had a life-changing encounter with Jesus because she met the one who was the well. Jesus was the well. She was at the well drawing temporary water. Jesus is the eternal well that gives us eternal water that we never thirst again. I can tell you right now, 11 years, I've never thirsted. I've never had to look for satisfaction to quench my carnal thirst. I've never had to look for pleasure or women or money or drugs or alcohol to satisfy me because when you drink of his well, you put down all your other buckets. He's all that you need. Okay. Jesus demonstrates his power over distance by healing an official's dying son from 20 miles away. That's John 4, 43. A servant comes to him, meets and says, uh, a, a government official comes, says, Jesus, my son's dying. You need to come heal him. Jesus says, go, your son has been made well. As the man is walking back 20 mile journey, a servant comes to him and says, your son was healed at this time. And the man realizes, listen to this, the exact moment Jesus spoke, his son was healed. So there are times where you have to understand God gives us the word and we don't see immediate results, but we have to go walk out the word. Are you catching this? As the man is walking home, 20 mile journey, he didn't realize that he didn't see the miracle immediately. He was walking out the word. Jesus said, go home, your son is healed. And tonight, some of you have gotten a word from God and you haven't seen the results, but you are walking out the word. You got to believe that God is not on dial up. God's word is instant. And the moment God gives you the word, the word has come to pass. You just have to walk it out. I'm walking out words right now. I'm walking out that 20 mile journey to a word God has given me. I haven't arrived there yet, but I know that God has done it and I'm praying and I'm believing that God is working things out on my behalf for his, for his, um, for his will. Chapter five, Jesus instantly heals a man who had been lame for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. This is an amazing story because Jesus stepped over thousands that were sick to get to the one man that needed healing and to heal one man. And I don't know if it was the man's faith. We don't know why did Jesus step out over others that were sick to go heal this man. I just know this. I don't want to be the person Jesus stepped over. Imagine all those sick people at the pool of Bethesda that Jesus had to step over to get to the man to heal him. I want to be the man that Jesus heals, not the man that Jesus steps over. So I'm going to keep myself in a place of humility and a place of desperation and a place of hunger. Don't be the person Jesus steps over. Be the person Jesus heals. 38 years the man was lame, Jesus heals him, and the man begins to walk. Now, this is much more deeper than just Jesus healing him, because if you know anything about learning to walk again, if you get a spinal cord injury, or you become a quadriplegic or paraplegic, or you lose feeling in your legs for a year or two, people have to relearn to walk once they've been healed, or once they've been restored, and you have to relearn to walk. This man not only got healed, but relearn to walk instantly. So here's the point. When God does the miracle, leave the details to God. Today we'd say, well, God, you're going to have to heal me. Then you're going to have to, I'm going to have to relearn to walk. Then I'm going to have to do this. No, God says, I can heal you, redeem you, restore you, heal your brain, change your mind, teach you to walk all of that in one second. That's the healing power of God. The man got up and began to walk after 38 years. Didn't have to go learn, didn't have to take a class, but God instantly healed the man. And I believe tonight God can instantly heal your issues. The same Jesus we're talking about, if you're wondering why I'm so excited, is the same Jesus that's today alive and well in our midst, Emmanuel, that through the power of the Holy Spirit could heal you, restore you, and don't even worry about the details because God can figure it out and God can work it out. Because Jesus healed on the Sabbath and claimed to be God, 
the Jewish leaders begin to try to kill him. Jesus claimed to be able to give God like give life like God gives life in John 5, 19 through 23. Look at what Jesus said. Then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do for whatever he does that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel for as the father raises the dead. Listen to this for as the father raises the dead and gives life to them. Even so the son gives life to whom he will for the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. But he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. So the idea was the religious people honored God the Father, but not Jesus as the Messiah. They rejected Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah. So Jesus is constantly saying, the same way you honor the Father, you must honor me because the Father has sent me and I and the Father am one. We are together as one. Some say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Again, he's constantly saying the Father and I are one. He's constantly saying we are of the same. The Father has sent me. The Father is in me and we are together unified. John he goes on to call five witnesses to prove his deity to the religious person. These are the five witnesses Jesus calls on himself. He's a witness to his deity. John the Baptist is a witness to his deity. His miracles are a witness to his deity. God the Father is a witness to his deity. And God's word is a witness. Because again, Jesus throughout John constantly called false. Jesus has to keep going back to saying, these things testify. And let me just show you one example in John 5, 45. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There's no one who accuses you. Moses, in whom you trust, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me, but you do not believe his writings. How will you believe my words? So Jesus says, Moses wrote about me. I'm the one Moses wrote about. So I'm, I'm testifying that the Bible testifies to me. So you don't believe me. And he gives five witnesses at the end of John 5 to say, I am the son of God. Okay, John 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves and two fish. You've heard it in your Sunday morning school. All the disciples begin to hand out food and the Bible says, as they handed out the food, it multiplied. So God gives it to them, but it wasn't until they begin to hand it out that they'll see multiplication. The point is this, God will give you gifts, talents, and abilities. And as you extend those talents and abilities to others, God will multiply them. So whatever God has put in your hands to bless others, God will do the multiplying. Don't worry about it. God has given me gifts. And as I'm giving you these gifts, as I'm sharing my gifts with you, God brings multiplication. The fact that we have tens of thousands of people writing our ministry saying, I got healed. I got delivered. I got saved. It wasn't through Isaiah Saldivar. It was the fact that God has given me gifts, the ability to preach his word. And as I give you guys those gifts, God does the work. God does the multiplication. I hate to tell you this, but I've never healed anybody. I've never delivered anybody. I've never saved anybody. The only thing I've saved is by switching to Geico. You guys have heard me say that before. The point is, as God gives me his tools, his abilities, his gifts, I'm extend them to you guys. I hand them to you guys and God multiplies that and God does the work. This is what happened with the food. God multiplied it. And I love what the Bible says. There was leftovers. So bring home leftovers. When you're at church being fed the word of God, when you're in my broadcast, hearing the word of God tonight, take leftovers home to your family. I remember being a kid and my parents would come home from a restaurant and I would wait to see, did they bring me leftovers? I hope they brought leftovers so that I can have what they had at the restaurant. When you leave your Sunday morning and you go home to your family that's not saved, bring them leftovers. Bring them something that you learned. 
Listen to me tonight and bring somebody something you've heard. Don't just throw away what you've heard, but bring home the leftovers. Come on, somebody. Jesus then walked in water to help his disciples during a storm. They're afraid when they saw him because they didn't recognize him. And this happens today. We are afraid of Jesus because we don't recognize the Jesus of the Bible. When miracles happen, we're afraid. When deliverance happens, amen. We are afraid. Oh no, people are getting delivered. I'm scared. We run out of the building. Pastors kick you out when you start getting delivered because we don't recognize the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus came to the disciples walking on water and they did not recognize him in John 6, 16 through 21. All right, John 6, 22. Jesus taught the crowds the necessity of believing him, believing in him for eternal life by comparing himself to bread that gives physical nourishment john 6 25 to 29 and when they found him on the other side of the sea they said to him rabbi when did you come here jesus answered and said most assuredly i say to you you seek me not because you saw the signs but because you ate the loaves and were filled do not labor for food which perishes but for food which endures everlasting life which the son of man will give you because the god because god the father has set a seal on him when they when they said to him what shall we do that we may that we may work the works of God. Jesus answered, "This is the work of God that you believe in whom he sent." In other words, Jesus says, paraphrase, you guys only come to me because you want food, natural nourishment, but Jesus says, "I'm offering you food that's eternal. It's not perishing like natural food, so stop coming to me looking for temporary things when I offer eternal things." And he says, "This is the work of God. Believe in whom he sent, which was Jesus, obviously. And then Jesus goes on and says, I'm the manna from heaven. I'm the bread of life. The same way you saw manna during Moses's time. I'm the manna that comes down from heaven. Like he's just trying to get them to get this. He's the one that God has sent to save them. Okay. Then after that, most of the crowds leave his speech, but then the 12 disciples, Jesus basically says in John six, eat my flesh, drink my blood. He wasn't speaking literally. He was speaking figuratively, but they all left him. Jesus turns to the 12 and says, are you going to leave me too? And the disciples specifically Simon Peter responds, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, we've gone and done everything else. You're the only one that makes us feel alive. You have the words of eternal life. Can anybody type one in the chat and testify that we've tried everything else? to make us feel alive but it was the moment that we met Jesus that Jesus gave us life that Jesus's word made us feel alive I remember when Jesus spoke to me for the first time and I came alive nothing ever made me feel alive but Jesus's word so the answer is where would we go nothing else makes us feel alive but Jesus he's the one that makes us feel alive okay I love that in John 6 John 7 Jesus's brothers who didn't believe in him tried to get him to show himself publicly at the Feast of Tabernacles, but he didn't go until it was right and according to God's timetable. The Bible says something very sad. It says that his own brothers did not believe in him. So I want to give you this word. Don't be heartbroken when your friends or family don't believe in you. Jesus believes in you. God believes in you. Jesus's biological brothers did not believe in him. Now we all want our family to believe in us, to believe in our business, to believe in our, our the God that we serve, to believe in the, the calling on our life. But even Jesus was rejected by his own brothers who didn't believe in him. Jesus then claimed his teachings were from God and challenged the leader's claims that they were following the law when they accused him of breaking it. This is John 7, 16 through 19. Watch this. Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but he, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak on my own authority. 
He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the people respond with, you have a demon. By the way, multiple times in the book of John, people accuse Jesus of having a demon. So I've been accused on YouTube, oh, this guy has a demon because he casts out demons. Praise the Lord. Thank you for making those videos. Even Jesus was accused of using demonic power to cast out demons. And Jesus was accused multiple times of having a demon. So if people accuse you for having a demon because you're preaching the word of God, that's awesome. Praise the Lord. Jesus was accused multiple times by the religious people, just to say, of having a demon. So the whole situation was people were blind to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah and they used every chance they can get to disprove him and discredit him. Okay. As they were dividing over Jesus' teaching, Jesus tells him in John 7, 30 through 36, he would be going back to God. So he goes, I'm going somewhere that you cannot go. I'm returning to my father and you're not going to be able to find me any longer. Then Jesus offered living water to the spiritually thirsty people when they believed in him. Jesus said, I'm going to give you water. In fact, let's read this. John 7, 37 through 39. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, so Jesus in a loud voice, I know all of you think Jesus didn't yell when he preached, Jesus was quiet, but the Bible says in a loud voice, he cried out saying this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit. So it says he didn't say, I'll give you physical water. He's talking about the Holy Spirit whom those believing would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus had not been glorified yet. So Jesus gets up and says, you must be thirsty. If you're thirsty, yes, Jesus is crying out in a loud voice. If you're thirsty, you can come to me and you can get living water and the living water is the Holy Spirit, but you can't be passive. You must be thirsty. Jesus is ready to pour out on those that are thirsty. Then at the end of John 7, type I am thirsty in the chat or on the replay. Type it in the comments down below. Jesus teaching divided people. Some believed, others wanted to kill him. Jesus' teaching was not soft and passive. It was divisive. It said, either you're for me or you are against me. It drew the line, and I pray that my preaching would draw the line. I don't ever want to be one of those preachers that's like, ah, oh, well, everybody's kind of saved and everybody's good to go. We need to draw the line in the sand as Jesus did. Okay, chapter 8. When the religious leaders brought a woman caught in adultery, instead of accusing her or punishing her, Jesus forgave her. The law said to stone her. Jesus said, you're forgiven, stop sinning. So basically the Pharisees come throw this woman in front of Jesus and they say, okay, the law says stone her, what do you say? And Jesus says, he that has no sin or is without sin, cast the first stone. And they slowly all put their rocks down and walked away. Because again, Jesus is teaching this new covenant is, I'm not going to condemn you for your sin. I'm going to forgive you of your sin. And in being forgiven of your sin, I pray and my desire is that you no longer want to sin. So he didn't condemn her, but the new covenant is forgiveness, not condemnation. But then once we're forgiven, Jesus goes, don't sin any longer. But this is really Jesus displaying the new covenant. Jesus is the light of the world who shows people their sins and shows people what God is like. That's John 8, 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This is a profound truth. 
Get ready what I'm about to say here. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. When you walk in Christ, you're no longer walking in darkness. In other words, you're no longer living this random life, but you have purpose, you have direction, you have a, a, a life that has meaning. And I, it's hard to even put this profound reality into words because I look back before I was saved. I'm 19 years old and I'm living in darkness. I have no purpose in life. I have no direction. I'm just kind of wandering around, scratching on the walls, looking for something to bring me value. But then Jesus comes in my life and says, now you're walking in the light. Now you have a reason to get out of bed and there's no darkness in me because I'm the light of the world and I'm giving you light. You don't live a dark life. Come on, if you're tired of living in darkness, random, then start believing in Jesus who is the light of the world. It's, it's profound when Jesus says, I am the light of the world in John 8. John 8, 21, Jesus says, people don't believe in me will die in their sins instead of gaining eternal life. So you either gain eternal life or Jesus says in John 8, 21 through 24, you die in your sins because you don't believe in me. And then he goes on and talks about how freedom from slavery to sin comes from knowing Jesus and the truth of God's word. Jesus said this in John 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. You're no longer living a slave to sin. Come on, Holy Ghost, tonight, thank you. I'm no longer in bondage. I'm no longer in chains. For those of you that say, well, I could stop this sin anytime. No, you can't. You are a slave to whom the master you obey. And you keep going back saying, God, I'm tired of watching pornography, drinking this bottle, going back to the meds. And you know, every time you say, I'm done, I'm never gonna do this again, you're right back in it. But now God says you're no longer a slave to sin. Come on, we just broke 2,000 people. Praise the Lord. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm a slave to righteousness. I've been made free. Jesus then at the end of John 8 claims deity by saying that he existed before Abraham. In fact, I want to read you this because I love this statement here. And again, they're going to accuse Jesus of having a demon. What else is new? John 8, 57 through 59. Watch this. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you've not seen Abraham. So he's, he said, I was around before Abraham. And they said, what? You're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoo, I get the chills when I say this. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that's capital I am, by the way. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus himself, Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple and went through the midst and passed them by. They're going, how could you be around before Abraham? You don't know Abraham. You're not even 50 years old. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Man, that gives me chills every time I say it. That's the power of Jesus, the God that we serve. Creator Yahweh, creator God, who is there in the beginning. Chapter nine, whoo, come on, Holy Ghost. Chapter nine, Jesus told his disciples, the man born blind was there so that God's power could be displayed in him. That God, And then Jesus gave him sight. So they, they saw a man born blind, they said, Jesus, whose sin is it? Is it his sin? Is his father's sin? It's not fair he's born blind. But here's the reality. Life isn't fair. We live in a fallen, broken world. And Jesus' response is, neither. He was born blind so that God's glory can be revealed in him. And people hate this verse because they're like, why would God allow someone to be born blind? It's not that God made him blind. It's that his life's meaning was 
to be born blind to reveal the glory of God. God doesn't just go around making people blind just so he can heal them. The devil comes to still kill, destroy, bring sickness and death, and God redeems. Thank you, Daniel Adams, for that donation. I love you, bro. God redeems, God restores, and God renews. And what the enemy meant for bad, God says, I'm going to turn around for good. And you might have been born that way. Come on. But you're not going to be born again that way. You might have been born blind. You might have been born deaf. You might have been born angry, bitter, resentful, a liar, a thief. But God's power can heal you, deliver you, save you, restore you. And God's glory can be displayed in your life, even if you were born that way. Some people didn't believe in him. And they thought the man who could see hadn't been born blind. So look at what John 9, 8 through 12 says. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen the man that was blind said, is this not the man that sat and begged? Some said, this is him. Others said, he's like him. And he said, I am he. Therefore, they said to him, how are your eyes open? He answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes and said, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. Then they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. So just believe this, believe this. When you get healed, delivered, there's always going to be doubters. Don't be shocked when you say, I got demons cast out of me at Daniel Adams meeting or Isaiah's meeting or Vlad's meeting. By the way, hi, Vlad. Hi, Daniel. I appreciate you guys in the chat. Don't be shocked when people say, oh, that's not real. They're not really casting out demons. You're not really getting healed and delivered. It's all fake. That's what they said to the guy. The guy's like, I was blind, so say what you want to say. It doesn't really matter to me. Um, the Pharisees grilled the man's parents, and the parents are like, he's a grown man. Go ask him. The man gets thrown out of the synagogue because he's like, I don't know what to tell you. I just know I was blind, and now I see. I don't know the theological response. I just know I was blind, and now I see. Jesus finds the man in the temple and offers the man eternal life, and the man says, Lord, I believe, and the man worships Jesus. What a beautiful story. Jesus then tells the Pharisees that they are spiritually blind and they're going to stay that way unless they believe in him. Let's just look at this quickly in John 9, 39. And Jesus said, for judgment, I've come into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said, are we blind also? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remained. In other words, Jesus goes, I'm compassionate to those that are uh, ignorant to their sin and blind and they're willing to have their eyes open what i'm not compassionate towards is the pharisees who claim that they can see but are actually blind spiritually are y'all catching that so that's where jesus says i'm not compassionate and you he goes basically your sin remains because you claim to see when you can't even see your own sin the blind man believed and gained physical and spiritual sight the pharisees who ha supposedly had spiritual sight were actually blind wow that's good stuff john chapter 10 we're moving along. We got 19 minutes. We're, we got this. We're moving along here. Jesus compared the people to sheep and the religious people to thieves and robbers. And this is where I want to read you a very misunderstood verse in John 10, 9 through 10. Okay. This is what Jesus said. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and life more abundantly. Okay. Does the devil still kill and destroy? Yes. Is the devil represented as a thief in scripture? Yes. But I'm going to say something controversial here. In John 10, this is not talking about the devil. I know, I know, I know. Everyone's like, no, wait, what? Okay. We've been taught our whole life that this John 10 is about the devil. It's actually not. It's about 
the corrupt religious leaders that are thieves and robbers. It's about corrupt leadership in the church that are thieves. That's religious leaders. It's not about the devil, although the devil does come still kill and destroy, but it's not talking about the devil. I know I'm going to burst your traditional bubble there, but it's talking about religious leaders. We know this because John 10, 12 through 13, Jesus says, but a hireling who is not the shepherd, one who's not owned the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, but the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and doesn't care about the sheep. Okay, so when our pastors and leaders are not helping us get free, get delivered, giving us the true word of God, it's because they're hirelings. They don't really care about you. They don't care about the sheep. They're just doing it for a job. I've said that before, but Jesus says, I'm the true shepherd and I actually care about you and I actually care about the sheep. Jesus called himself the gate who protects the people. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd who leads people to God, protects them and gives them life. The people were divided who Jesus was in John 10. During the Feast of Je Dedication, Jesus claimed again that he was God and challenged the Jews to believe in him. The Jewish leaders tried to stone him and they claimed Jesus of blasphemy and they tried to arrest him. But again, Jesus escaped because his time had not yet come. Okay, John 11, Lazarus was sick. His, asker, his sisters, not his askers, his sisters asked Jesus to come, but Jesus waited two days. Now he waited two days, I believe, so that when he did the miracle, the explanation was this only could be God. If you're asking God for a miracle and you're wondering why the miracle could is delayed, it could be because God wants to make sure nobody gets credit but him. So you're saying, God, why haven't you done this? And God says, I'm going to wait a little bit longer to do it. It's not because I'm not hearing you or I don't want to, but I want to do the miracle at a time where only I only I can get the glory where people say, there's no way that was your doctor. Come on. Are you guys with me tonight? There's no way that was medication. There's no way that was therapy. There's no way that was an AA or triple A or double A program. That was only Jesus. It's, you were so far gone. Help that it was only Jesus that did the miracle. And in light of Lazarus's death, Jesus, and I want you guys to know it's really hard for me not to preach an hour long sermon here going over this, but I got to go through the whole book here. Jesus told Martha that he is the resurrection and the life. Let me read you this, John 11, 23 through 27. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said back to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And then listen to what Jesus says. Whoo! Somebody write this in the chat. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Let me say that again. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That's the promise to you. And then he says, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is come into the world. But this is the beautiful statement. Whoever lives, not just believes in me, but whoever lives and believes in me. So you got to live in me. You got to live for Jesus and believes in me shall never die. You will never taste death if you believe and live in Christ. Death being, the actual meaning of death is separation from God. So you'll never live separated eternally from God, but you'll be connected to God and you'll never die. And then we know at the end of John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. This is John 11, 41 through 44. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he said these things, he cried with a loud voice. Here we see Jesus yelling again. Here we see Jesus crying out loudly again. This is what he cried out loud. Lazarus, 
come forth. And, and then it says this, and he who had died came out bound and foot with grave clothes and he, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Jesus shouted. Okay. So dead things respond to loud shouting. So there's times where it's okay to shout. There's times where it's okay to praise loud. It's okay to shout with a voice of triumph. So if you don't like shouting, if you don't like shouting, you're probably not even watching this right now because I shout all the time. But I believe there's something about our shout, our praise, our passion, our loudness. There's a reason why at the football game they shout. There's a reason why at the club they're shouting, dancing, screaming. People are yelling at the parties. You wake up the next day drunk, hungover, with no voice. Yet why is it in the church we're, we're just so quiet? Why is it we're so dead? It is okay to shout. If you don't like it, oh well. Uh, maybe something will come alive if you begin to open up your mouth and shout. Jesus says the resurrection, the life. He's the resurrection and the life. And the result of this miracle, the religious people plotted to kill Jesus. Okay, chapter 12. Mary poured perfume on Jesus' feet to anoint him for burial. But Judah said this was a waste of money. The, the oil or the perfume that she poured on Jesus was about 40,000 US dollars. It equated to one year's salary, the average salary of one year. And the disciples were like, this is a waste. And Judas goes, we could have sold this and given the money to the poor. And let me make this statement. When you give your life to Jesus and you lay it all down, there will always be people that are saying you're wasting it on Jesus. Isaiah, you're wasting your time on Jesus. You're going to those prayer meetings, wasting your life. You're going on those live streams. Isaiah, some, some watch my stream and say, what a waste of a life. This guy gives his life to preaching the gospel. What a waste. You could be going out and doing other careers, building businesses, being successful, yet you're wasting it on social media, preaching the gospel. When you have radical commitment, there will always be somebody. Are you guys catching my drift tonight? Are you smelling what I'm cooking tonight? There will always be somebody that says, what a waste. But let me make this statement. Nothing is ever wasted when it's on Jesus. Nothing. He's worthy of everything. If you burned out, if you gave $100,000 to him, some would say that's a waste of money. You could have bought a new car or a down payment of a house. It's never a waste when it's on Jesus. None of your time, none of your energy. Come on, somebody needs to hear this. If you pray tomorrow for 10 hours straight, and you go and someone goes, what a waste of a day. It would never be a waste. There's no such thing as wasting it. And I've, I've chosen and I've committed my life to wasting it on Jesus. I'm going to waste the next 80 years of my life on Jesus because there's no such thing as wasting when it comes to Jesus. And Judas, Judas of all people is going to say, what a waste when he's over there with his hand in the money bucket, in the, in the coin, stealing money. Yet he says, what a waste. What a hypocrite Judas was. Don't be a Judas. Mary understood that Jesus was going to die and she anointed him. This was an act of preparing a body for burial. Jesus was actually anointed three times, but one of the times he was anointed was Mary anointing him. When's the last time you anointed Jesus? When's the last time he said, I'm going to pour out my alabaster box. I'm going to pour out my perfume. I'm going to give God everything. And I'm going to anoint you, Jesus, because you're worthy of being anointed. She anointed him because she understood what was happening. When Lazarus started attracting attention, the religious people plotted to kill Jesus. People saw, the religious people saw people were coming to see Lazarus and they were freaking out. And so they really wanted to kill Jesus. Jesus then rides in Jerusalem on a donkey and was greeted by crowds waving palm branches. Okay, sadly they say, they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, but they would be saying several days later, crucify him, crucify him. Hosanna is a Hebrew word for save now. And they thought Jesus, the king, would deliver them from the Roman rule. Unfortunately, 
They had the wrong idea about who their Messiah King would be. Jesus was not a political savior. He was a spiritual savior. And when they realized that, they would shout, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. Jesus taught we must die to our own self-interest in order to gain eternal life. For the sake of time, I won't go into that much detail. Many Jewish people did not believe in Jesus because their hearts were hardened towards God's truth. Let me just read you that in John 12, 37. But although he had done many signs before them, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah, the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm, who, to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. In other words, although they saw the miracle signs and wonders, they did not believe in Jesus. Just like many people that don't believe in deliverance or miracles, even though they'll see a video of somebody getting delivered, they'll say it's fake. That's not real. It's an actor. Or they'll see a miracle. They'll see somebody's arm grow or leg grow or healed of cancer. They will still stay cessationist and say that wasn't real. The person's fake. That's what they did Jesus, even though they saw the miracles, their hearts were hardened. Religion hardens the heart. So their hearts remained hard. Jesus in John 12, 44 through 50 made one last appeal to believe in him. Okay. John chapter 13, Jesus gave his disciples example of servanthood by washing their feet. Jesus, knowing that the father had given, this is John 13, three, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things in his hand, had come from God and was going to God, rose from the from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe the t- with them and wipe them with the towel which he had girded. This is Jesus, the the complete ultimate act of humility, washing his disciples' feet. Now Peter protested to the feet washing, and Jesus said this in John thirteen six through nine. This is for you. Listen to what Jesus said. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord. Are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I'm doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after. And Peter said, You shall never wash my feet. Okay? You cannot wash me, Jesus. Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you will have no part with me. And this is not only what Jesus said to Peter, but Jesus is saying to you right now. Listen to what Jesus is saying to you right now. If I do not wash you, you can have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. The word of God is this. If you don't let Jesus wash you and cleanse you of your sin, you cannot walk with Jesus. There's many people that say, I don't want to be washed. I don't want to be cleansed. I just want Jesus to save me. And Jesus says, if you don't let me wash you, you will have no part in me. Let Jesus wash you. Let Jesus cleanse you tonight of your sin and unrighteousness. Okay. Jesus goes on to teach the disciples about serving others to announce that Judas would betray him and then issue a new commandment. And this is the new commandment to love one another. That's the new command. And then Jesus would predict that Peter would deny him instead of laying his life down. Peter says, I'm going to lay my life down for you. And Jesus goes, no, you're not. You're actually going to deny me three times. When the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. So yeah, you're zealous. You say, I want to serve me. I want to die for me. I want to die for you. But Peter, you're not even going to be able to stand for me. You're going to deny me. I think there's many people in the chat right now that go, I would die for Jesus. I would get beheaded for Jesus. And Jesus goes, You don't even share your faith with your neighbor. You don't even tell anybody about me. So I'm guaranteeing you're not going to die for me if you don't even share your faith with your neighbor. So be careful to say, I'm willing to die for you, Jesus, when you're not even willing to live for him. John 14, we're on chapter 14. Jesus claims to be the only way to God. That's John 14, 1. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is capital O-N-L-Y. 
Jesus is the only way to God. There's no other road. There's no other route. I know what pop culture teaches. Jesus is the only way. Jesus reinforced that him and the Father are one, and his words prove that fact. Jesus says in John 14, 7, if you know me, you would have known my Father also, and from now you know him and have said. And then Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that's and it is sufficient for us. So just show us the Father. And then Jesus said, have I been with you so long and yet you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? The words I speak, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am the Father and the Father in me or, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. So if you don't believe me, Philip, believe the works. And Jesus said that in John 10 as well. If you don't believe me, believe the works. I am the only way. The Father and I are one. John 14, 8, Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit that will live in believers. This is where Jesus says, I'm going to send the helper. I'm going to send the comforter, the attorney, the, the Holy Spirit to help you. Anyone who, who loves Jesus will also obey him. Remember, Jesus goes, don't just say you love me, but obey me. Do the works that I said to do and do what, you, do what I've called you to do. And then Jesus promises peace to his followers. Chapter 15, we're going quick here. Jesus expects his disciples to remain in him like branches on a vine in order to be fruitful and to be spirit and to be fruitful spiritually we must be connected to the vine how many of you know a tree does not go oh i really i'm really trying hard to produce fruit i really am putting an effort a tree produces fruit because it's connected to the vine to the branch our job, if we're going to produce fruit, is to stay connected. You don't have to stress out saying, I need to produce fruit. I need to pray more, read more. Stay connected to Jesus and you'll produce fruit. As John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch is withered and they gathered and thrown in the fire and they are burned. So here's the goal. If you want to bear much fruit, this is what Jesus says, abide in me read pray fast stay with me abide in me jesus then commands his disciples to love one another even to the point of dying he says this is my commandment that you love one another as i've loved you greater love has as no one than this than a man lay down his life for his friends jesus then calls his disciples now friends instead of servants and shared the word of god with them jesus goes you're no longer servants but you are now friends because the world hates Jesus, he says, it's also going to hate you. This was Jesus's promise. What a great promise. The world has hated me, and now the world is going to hate you. If you're hated by the world, you're in good company because they hated him first. When Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, it will tell people about Jesus along with his disciples. Okay, John 16, we're moving here. Jesus predicts the persecution of his disciples, including his death. He basically lets the disciples know you're going to die for me, which the Jewish people considered a favor to God. They thought that they were doing God a favor by killing the disciples. Jesus repeated that he's going to be going back to heaven. And when he goes back, again, he's promising the helper, the Holy Spirit. He goes, I'm going to leave. It's better. In fact, he says, it's better that I go so that I can send the Holy Spirit, the helper to be with you. And now Jesus will speak to us through the person of the Holy Spirit. Remember, this is good theology. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and Jesus speaks to us through the person of the Holy Spirit. After Jesus left the earth, the Holy Spirit would come and further teach the believers truth about Jesus. What is the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to glorify Jesus. He's going to teach us. He's going to empower us. And he's going to teach us and continue to teach what Jesus taught. The disciples did not understand what Jesus meant when he was going away. And Jesus explained that the disciples' grief at his departure would turn to joy. 
In other words, you're going to be grieving now, but there will be joy once the Holy Spirit comes and once I raise from the dead. So yes, you're going to grieve. Yes, you're going to mourn, but there will be great joy when I return and I come back to life. After Jesus' death, his followers could pray directly to God the Father. Watch what he says here in John 16, 23. And in that day, you will, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. So Jesus says, I'm going to go in that day. So notice what he says here. Most people never catch this. In that day, you'll ask me nothing. So you'll no longer pray and ask me something like you do, you do now. Right now you say, Jesus, do this, do that. He says, but I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give you. So he says, you ask the Father in my name because I'm going away now. So now you're going to ask the Father in the name of Jesus. You ask the Father and then it will be given unto you. Okay. Chapter 17. Jesus asked God to glorify him and for his death to glorify the Father. Jesus reported that he revealed the Father to his disciples. Jesus prayed that the Father would protect disciples whom he'd given to Jesus. John 17 is Jesus praying. It's powerful there. Make sure that you go read it. Jesus also asked God, if, Je if Jesus is praying to the Father and he gives us an insight to how he prays and he gives us a, a window into what it is prayers like, and if you've ever wondered, Jesus is always praying to the Father, right? He's getting away and praying. Have you ever thought, what did Jesus' prayer sound like? Like, what was Jesus praying? I want to know, what does Jesus pray like? John 17, this is what Jesus is praying. He's praying that the Father would protect the disciples whom the Father gave Jesus. He's praying that this, the disciples would be safe from Satan while they're in the world. Not that he would take them out of the world, but that the Father would protect them. And he's praying that those who would believe in him for the future, he's praying that the disciples would be one as him and the Father are one. So he goes, the same way me and you are connected, let the disciples be that connected and be that close. And then Jesus reported that he had made the Father known to the disciples and would continue in doing so. John 17 is amazing. John 18, Judas led a group of priests and temple guards to Jesus so they could arrest him. This would be Judas becoming the traitor that he was prophesied to be. They would arrest Jesus. Jesus, taking control of the situation, voluntarily surrenders to the mob leaders. He gives himself up. Remember, nobody takes his life. He gives his life. It was not that they had power. Jesus goes, I could call down legions of angels but he surrenders. Peter, being carnal, tries to defend Jesus, ends up cutting off a servant's ear, which Jesus ends up healing. And while um, Annas was questioning Jesus in preparation for sentencing, Peter was in the courtyard denying Jesus was as being one of his disciples. So this was the prophecy being fulfilled that Peter would deny Jesus in John 18. The religious leaders took Jesus to Pilate to pronounce the death sentence, but Pilate couldn't find Jesus was guilty of a crime that deserved crucifixion. Pilate offered to release a prisoner, hoping the Jewish leaders would choose Jesus. Instead, they chose Barabbas. So Jesus goes, I'm sorry, Pilate goes, you can let Jesus free, who's done nothing to deserve death, or at once a year, they would let a prisoner, a terrible prisoner free, or you can let Barabbas, a murderer, a thief, and a terrible person free. And who do you want to let go? And they choose Barabbas over Jesus. But here's the kicker in the story. I'm Barabbas. You're Barabbas. We are the ones that are guilty. We deserve condemnation. We deserve to be crucified for all that we've done. We've broken every one of God's laws, but Jesus steps in, takes our place, and we get let free. We are Barabbas in the story. We're the ones that were let free with no punishment when Jesus died a criminal's death. And I want you to realize that Jesus did not die a noble death on the cross. He wasn't up there like, 
Look at the Savior. It wasn't like the world looked at him. He died a murderer's death, a crucified crucifixion was the worst death that the murderers were were given this was a thieves death and he was not noble he was spit on on the cross and the world mocked and laughed at him so it wasn't like jesus came and died nobly he died as a criminal and rose as the king of kings lord of lords but it wasn't a good death he took on our sin and became us on that cross became sin so that we may know not no sin and we might become the righteousness of god so i want you to realize it wasn't a noble act in the in the world's eyes of course it was a noble act but in the eyes of the world it was a criminal's death i want to remind you of that it wasn't glorious while he was on the cross so they chose barabbas chapter 19. pilate had jesus beaten and he had the soldiers mock him as king not, not realizing they mocked him that he was a king but he really was not just a king he was the king of kings the jewish leaders took the Jewish leaders continued to demand that Pilate crucify Jesus. Pilate didn't want to, but they continued to demand his crucifixion. Pilate tried to pull a power play, but Jesus reminded him that his power comes from God. Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but bowed to the pressure that the Jewish leaders kept wanting to crucify him. Um, that we could go into detail on that. John 19, 17 through 24, Jesus was crucified between two thieves. Again, a criminal's death. And before he died, Jesus arranged for John to take care of his mother. That's John 19, 25 through 27. Jesus voluntarily died and did not have to have his bones broken to hasten his death. Um, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus claimed Jesus' body and buried him. That's John 19, 38 through 42. Now, I want you to remember, they, Jesus wasn't dead yet. They broke the bones of the other two, but Jesus being the perfect lamb, I'm sorry, Jesus was already dead, so they didn't need to break his bones. And there's a whole preaching you could go on that and a whole story of why they didn't break Jesus' bones. If a lamb's bones were broken, it wasn't a legitimate sacrifice. So when they checked on the thieves on the cross, they were still alive. So they had to break their bones to kill them, to hasten their death. Jesus didn't need no one to hasten his death because he gave himself up voluntarily. So when they checked Jesus, he was already dead. So they didn't need to break his bones. Because remember, if the lamb's bones were broken, it was an illegitimate sacrifice. So Jesus died without his bones being broken. That's the whole story of um, Jesus did not have to have his bones broken to hasten his death in John 19. Okay, chapter 20, we're doing good. We're an hour and five minutes in. We're right there. John 20, Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John discovered that Jesus was not in his tomb. Mary talked with two angels in Jesus's tomb, and they basically are going, they basically tell her, why are you looking for the living among the dead? The God that you serve, Mary, he's not dead. He's not here. You don't need to look among the dead for something that is alive. He's alive evermore. And this is the climax of John. Jesus is alive. And it's as true today as it was 2,000 years ago that the God that we serve is alive and well at the right hand of the Father, forever making intercession on our behalf. And tonight, he hears our prayers. That tonight as we pray, Jesus, the man that we just went through 20 chapters talking about, is alive and well. Jesus appeared to Jesus appeared to Mary at the tomb and told her to tell the disciples he was alive. Jesus then appeared to a group of disciples locked in the upper room and commissioned them to tell others about himself. Thomas refused to believe Jesus was alive until he touched Jesus' wounds and Jesus appeared and showed him his hands which had scars in his side and as a result Thomas believed often known as doubting Thomas, but Thomas did feel the the wounds and believed Jesus selected miracles to prove, I'm sorry, John recorded selective miracles, selected miracles to prove Jesus is the son of God. So people who read the book would believe in Jesus. Okay, chapter 21, we're in the, the final stretch, the last chapter, we're an hour and five minutes in, we're 65 minutes in, we almost did it here. 
Seven disciples met together. When Peter decided to go fishing, they went but didn't catch anything. So they got to a place where they said, we're going to go back to our old life. We're going to go back to what we were doing before. Let me just say, when God says to follow me, don't pick up what God said put down. They left their life of fishing, but now they're living in disappointment. Jesus is no longer around, and they decide to go back to fishing, go back to normal, but they didn't catch anything. And when you go back to what God has called you out of, it will never work. Like I was going through the process of becoming a deputy sheriff, if you didn't know when I got saved, I will never be able to go back and be successful in law enforcement because God called me out of it. So don't expect to go back to your old life and catch anything. The disciples go back to fishing, seven of them, and they caught nothing. It's not going to work once God says to follow me. And when the disciples follow Jesus' instruction, they catch, a net, they catch a net full of fish. Jesus invites the disciples to join him for breakfast on the beach, and they're going like, this is Jesus now. Like they encounter Jesus again and Jesus restores Peter right here. It's a famous, you know, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And P Jesus assigns Peter to the ministry of feeding his sheep. When Peter wanted to know what would happen to John, Jesus told him it was none of his business. And then Jesus predicted Peter's death. That's John 21, 20 through 23. Jesus goes, don't worry about how everyone else is going to die. Don't worry about what's going to happen to John. But Peter, you will die as a martyr at the hands of those that are going to persecute you. And then John concludes the book with a statement about his truthfulness as he was an eyewitness. So John says, I'm an eyewitness to this. This is truthful because I saw it and... John says this, this is the last thing John's going to say, and I love the way he ends it. If everything Jesus did was recorded, I, 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 uh, um, I would say, this is what John says, I would say that it would fill up the entire world. In other words, if everything, and he's using a figure of speech here, he's saying if everything Jesus did, it would be a massive encyclopedia, there would be no room in the world to write all that Jesus did. So we know that everything Jesus did is not in the Bible. All of the Bible is in God, but not all of God is in the Bible. There's many things that Jesus did that's not in the Bible. We know the Bible is not exhaustive, so there's many things that Jesus did that's not in the Bible, and that is 21 chapters in the book of John in 68 minutes. We did it in 68 minutes, guys. That's the entire book of John summarized, 68 minutes. I'm going to teach verse by verse the entire book of John very soon here. But I know many of you won't be able to, well, maybe some of you will because you're here now, but I hope that this gave you an overview. I hope this was awesome. I hope the Holy Spirit inspired it. The Holy Spirit got me through my neck pain and my feeling gross and feeling sick, and we went for it. I feel the Holy Spirit now. I want to pray with you guys. I'm telling you, it flew by. We've been live for an hour and 22 minutes, and I feel like we just hit the live button because the Holy Spirit is alive. He's let, let this be a testimony that the Holy Spirit is alive and well. The Holy Spirit spoke through me and I believe the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you now. Father, I pray right now for every single person watching this broadcast that your power would be released on them. I pray that this word would not be in vain, God that we would not go by the wayside, that the bird would not steal the word. It would not fall in the thorns. It would not fall in the footpath. But I pray, Lord, that it would fall on good soil, that we would be connected to the vine and that we would produce good fruit, Lord. Father, we need your power. We need your anointing. We need your fire in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would touch people right now in this broadcast. I pray, God, that you would heal. I pray that you would deliver. I pray that you would restore. I pray that you would renew. And I pray, God, divine power be released, salvation be released, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. There is nobody like our God. He's the well that you can drink from and gain eternal life from and eternal water from. He is the Son of God. He is God. Him and the Father are one. And tonight, 
Jesus is being exalted and lifted up. Jesus, we ask you to change our lives, God. Lord, change me. Come on, begin to pray for yourself. Change my heart, God. Pour out your Holy Spirit as you promised in John. John 7, that you would give us the Holy Spirit if we're thirsty and if we ask. So right now, just begin to ask him for the Holy Spirit. Just begin to thirst for the Holy Spirit. Just begin to desire the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit. We ask you, Lord, to fill our lives, to fill our family. Those of you watching with your kids, I pray that the Holy Spirit would baptize your children. I pray that the Holy Spirit would anoint your children tonight. In Jesus' name, God, do what only you can do. Do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, Father, we need you, God. Touch our lives right now. Touch our children right now. Baptize us in the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Do what only you can do. Heal your people. Deliver your people. In Jesus' mighty name. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. If you like what you heard, go to www.isaiahsaldivar.com for more content. And please follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Isaiah Saldivar. See you next week.